Women have played a wide variety of roles during wartime. During World War I, their main role was to work in munitions factories, on farms, and other areas to replace men drafted into the military. But as the years progressed, women got more and more involved in war efforts, including serving as journalists covering the combat. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Coming up on this week's show, we'll talk with a New York City resident who's penned a novel that explores the role of female journalists on the battleground and in the newsroom during the Vietnam War. There were several things that were a challenge. Number one was the male reporters weren't delighted to have them around and weren't used to it. But first, only 10% of American forces see combat. Still, the U.S. now has the highest rate of post-traumatic stress disorder in its history. And according to recent studies, women have a higher rate of developing PTSD than men. Reporter Carol Zimmer attended a retreat called Honoring the Path of the Warrior at a Zen monastery in Northern California that takes an unusual approach to helping veterans cope with their problems. Vanessa Mead, who spent four years as a military police officer in the Army, is sitting in a retreat center that still has the smell of new wood wafting through the room, facing 21 women sitting in a circle. Noticing your breath, any sounds in the room. The sounds in the room include the women shifting on their cushions on the floor, the rattle of the collars of four service dogs and one service cat moving around in its carrier, and the rustling sounds of one woman as she rises. She moves towards the spot where Mead is sitting near the window. It's in front of the altar where the women have placed objects that are special to them, a seashell from Mexico, a leaf from a cherry tree, a rosary, a compass. It's the place where each woman goes to tell her story. Someone came up from behind me and put a bag over my head. And I, I don't have a full memory of it. I remember being held down. I don't remember how many times they raped me. But we were on ship and we were out in the middle of the ocean. And there was no one to tell. 47-year-old Darlene Harris saw combat in Operation Desert Storm and Desert Shield. But the military sexual trauma she experienced was from men in her own unit. There was no one to tell then, but now a room full of people is listening. Each one is asked to say something to Harris that's not about judgment or analysis or blame or politics. Jesse Olaf was a military police officer in the Army when she was severely injured by an improvised explosive device in Iraq when she was 26. Honey, I want you to know that we all here hear you and we believe you and we all honor you. Honor is a word that comes up a lot in this room as the women learn to use the tools of sensory awareness and meditation to help them get over the trauma of combat and other difficult experiences in their lives. So does protect and nurture. Retreat co-leader Chris Fortin is also a Zen priest. One word comes to me is healing, but that doesn't feel big enough. It feels like bearing witness. It feels like uh, reconnecting allowing vets to come home to their own heart and their own humanity. There's no place to go. 
Co-leader Lee Lesser, who grew up on Long Island, founded Honoring the Path of the Warrior with Fortin seven years ago. Lesser says the idea was to create a place of safety where people don't have to carry their experiences alone. It's a different approach from the traditional way of dealing with trauma in which people are guided to re-experience the horrors they went through to try and rid themselves of the disturbing memories. This retreat relies on fostering a sense of community and providing a place where you can tell your story as a way to help integrate the experience into your life. We carry all kinds of things that we don't want to carry, but too bad, they're here. There's no place out but meeting. And when we meet, we find freedom, and we find connection, and we find love. And there is nothing in this room that cannot be met as painful, as horrible, As awful as it may be, when we meet it, we transform it. The tools that Fortin and Lesser use to help these veterans transform their traumatic experience may seem simplistic. Exercises that center on what is called mindfulness, like being aware of your breath and how your feet feel on the floor. There are breaks for arts and crafts projects using stones and wire to make necklaces that the vets exchange with one another and collage projects to decorate journals in which they write entries about gratitude. But it always comes back to each person telling her story. It's really sad when you want to kill yourself and you're so disabled you can't kill yourself. Army veteran Jesse Olaf is talking about the 18 months she spent in a VA hospital. After receiving a traumatic brain injury while on duty in Iraq, Olaf was sent back to the U.S. for treatment. She thought that she was on the road to recovery when she suffered a stroke that paralyzed her left side. Olaf says she was forced to count on doctors who, in the end, were not able to help her. The only thing I wanted was to be able to get out of the pain. And I just wanted my pain to go away. And they said to me, you know, it doesn't matter how many drugs we give you. It's a constant pain. It will never go away. It's from your time in, in combat. That time in combat was to change her life forever. Olive says that one day she got so depressed that she wheeled herself out of the hospital and onto some nearby trail. Pushing herself fast and furiously, she lost control and fell out of the chair. As she lay on the ground, she was forced to make a choice. Was she going to pull herself up or risk dying there before someone found her? I pushed with all my might and got myself into that stupid wheelchair. And then on I went and I tried every time. And and then when a doctor said I couldn't do something, I told, you know, I always say, you know, don't you tell me what I can do because <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to prove you wrong. And so that's been sustaining me ever since. <laughs> also sustaining her, the companionship of other veterans and the opportunity to create new memories. It's really cool to come together and be able to see all these women that have never seen each other before. And then within probably like two nights, they're all like giggling and, and cackling in the in the lunchroom. And, and they have so many stories that are so connecting themselves together. And they just didn't even know that they even had that connection, you know. Those connections weave together in free time throughout the day. Pull me up, Lance. 
Darlene Harris has taken her dog Lance and Bindi, a dog that belongs to another vet, down to the stream to romp amidst the stones. Darlene says her one-year-old German shepherd, a rescue dog, has become something of a canine savior for her. I have real bad PTSD issues and trauma, nightmares, and what they're putting me on helps slows the nightmares down, but it doesn't change that I still have them. So what he does is he'll come lick my arm to wake me up from my nightmares, and he'll also, if I'm starting to feel anxious, I'll tap my feet, and he'll come and put his, either his paw or his head over my foot to comfort me. Ronita Martin, a Navy veteran, is walking towards her cabin. Her sleeveless shirt exposes part of a large tattoo, seven bears marching around her arm that represent each of her children. Martin says she finds comfort in an image that helps her put her feelings in perspective. Everybody carries a backpack, and those are the things that you think and feel and things that have happened to you. But you can take that backpack off. You are not what you feel. So that kind of gave me a perspective about I am not my past. I don't have to be that child that no one took care of. But there is plenty of taking care of here as Martin helps push Olive's wheelchair to the zendo, the room where the vets are invited to sit and meditate. It wasn't lost on us when we did this that Zen was a good place to bring military people because there was maybe that initial sense of the order of it. Ritual feels like entering sacred space. Chris Fortin says other sacred space at Tassajara includes the hot springs located in a bathhouse that also has that smell of pungent wood. It's the site of the closing ceremony of the five-day retreat where the women walk to the stream in the pitch-black night to throw stones into the water. Feel what you're letting go of and feel how this life-giving water is carrying it. Lesser then asks Olaf from her wheelchair on the deck to end the evening. Maybe forgiveness will find me somewhere down this road. For Cityscape, I'm Carol Zimmer. I'm moving on. I'm moving on. I'm moving on. You're listening to Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. Next on the show, a look at female journalists during the Vietnam War. Manhattan resident Thiesa Tui has penned a novel that explores the role women reporters played on the battleground and in the newsroom during that time period. Thiesa is herself an international journalist, though she didn't cover Vietnam. Over the course of her career, Thiesa has worked for several daily newspapers and is a writer and editor for the Associated Press. She was the first female assistant editor at the Detroit News. Her new book is called Five Clock Follies. What's a woman doing here anyway? Thiesa, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So what inspired you to write a novel set in Vietnam? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. That's the short it, answer. It, it, uh, I think it probably was because um, I was an assistant city editor at the Detroit News at that time with a whole bunch of suburban reporters, and it was... 
nothing ever happened, you know. I mean, school boards and that sort of thing. And I, I think I was looking for uh, a more exciting venue. But once I got going with it, then I got much more involved in... It's really a book about the press. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got really involved in uh, how the correspondents covered the war and what life was like. And uh, so, you know, it evolved over many years. You also, as a young reporter, once wrote about a fallen soldier in Vietnam, correct? Oh, I did. I don't know how you knew that. I I was working for the Yonkers Herald Statesman. My hometown newspaper. Yeah, exactly. And... Um, It was, I'm still not quite sure, trying to remember back on it, I think it was the first soldier from from, um, Yonkers that was killed in Vietnam. And they sent me out to the funeral. I was young and green and didn't know my way around, and I got lost in in the Bronx. But, um, yeah, I I made it to the funeral, and... uh, I couldn't read my notes when I got back to the office. I had cried so much during the... But anyway, that was a really long time ago. And who knows if that, if somehow, some way, that was in the back of my mind. The funny part of that story, and one hates to tell funny stories about funerals and dead people, but I made it to the funeral and, as I said, cried so much I couldn't read my notes. But... I tried following the funeral procession Mm -hmm. and landed up in the wrong cemetery, and I didn't realize I was in the wrong cemetery. I I was standing there holding a flower, trying to cover, you know, be a cover for myself. And the priest intoned the wrong name. (laughs) (laughs) So I never made it all the way to to the burial. But yeah, that was a long time ago. And then later in your career as a journalist, I understand you stumbled on a book about Vietnam that also had an impact on you. That's probably really when the when the book took flight. I I found a a book. It was written by Peter Braestrup, who had the credentials of having been in the Marines and also a reporter for the Washington Post, and he set out on some kind of grant to I guess this was certainly the tone of the of the of the research. It was a tome. It was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. He checked every you know. It's like did the press lose the war in Vietnam? And uh, he said, you know, AP moved this story at two thirty seven and at two thirty eight they moved this correct whatever. You know, it was an in, it was an incredible in depth look at the press and how they covered the war. I still have that map that was mm. in his in his book. Yeah, that's that's really where the writing of the book began. This this map of nineteen sixty eight downtown Saigon Here's where the AP office was. Here's where Agent France Press was. Here's where the Continental Hotel was. And that was my Bible. I mean, because the press really centralized right around that area in downtown Saigon. They would go off and cover the war and come back and get drunk at the Continental. So that's where, certainly where I put my 
put my heroin in the Continental Hotel. And when I went many years later to check all my research, I not only stayed in, in the Continental, but I insisted upon being on the same floor where Graham Greene lived when he uh, wrote The Quiet American, which was a totally amazing book and in some ways did influence me also because in The Quiet American, he predicted in 1954 what was going to happen, what what we are eventually uh, going to end up getting into. When I did go to Vietnam, I carried that map with me. I was How long ago a, was that? When did you go to <laughs> Vietnam? Um, I think that was in 2001 or two. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been 10 years ago or 15, I guess, almost. I was on a tour because I I wasn't gutsy enough to do all of of Vietnam by myself. And as we were pulling into Saigon on this little bus, uh, the tour guide said, and there's the opera house. And I just jumped up out of my seat and said, that's not the opera house. That's the National Assembly building. Mm -hmm. And... Fortunately, he knew what I was, you know, what I was planning and what I was writing and what I was doing. And he laughed and said, well, you may be right. That may be what it was in in 1968, but I wasn't alive then. (laughs) Now, you never served in Vietnam, of course, but your book feels very real. It reads more like a memoir than a piece of fiction. I know. I mean, it. nobody believes it's fiction. In fact, this is really funny. I got a call four days ago from a guy who said, I forgot, wasn't it George? Some, he, he said, I know you don't know me, but he said, I think I know you. I remember, I'm sure, I was a press information officer during the Follies, during the Tet Offensive, and I remember seeing you at some of the briefings. I was like, I don't know how to break this to you. But <laughs> so what do you attribute that level of authenticity to? Was it I'm your experience in visiting there? I, You're a yeah, reporter. It was, mm-hmm. I, you know. The research. The research. I, I, in fact, that was one of the troubles that I had with the book was for so long it didn't read like a novel. <clears throat> it read like a whole bunch of uh, dispatches. I, I would... Read a you know read a book and read something about the the Huawei offense and I'd say oh well I think I'll send her away and then mm-hmm. I'd do all the research I could on Way and send her off there and for a long time I didn't didn't have a a novelistic thread through the book so that was but but I was obsessive about absolutely obsessive all the battles in there are absolutely accurate all the. And that's why no one, when they read it, everyone just says, I can't believe you weren't there. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, I was sort of in my head. Mm -hmm. I'm going to speak next month at the News Museum in Washington, D.C. as part of a year-long exhibit they're having on uh, called Reporting Vietnam. And I I just am so honored that they're including Mm me, but... You know, my book is just simply accurate. It's, you know, it's got a love story thrown into it. And it's also got the difficulties of being a freelancer in that period, in that time. Yeah, Uh, let's talk about 
your protagonist, Angela Martinelli, she uh-huh. went to Vietnam as a freelancer. Right. She paid her own way to get there. Exactly. Was that a common thing for absolutely. journalists to do? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Certainly for a woman, because no one would assign a woman. There weren't very many women there, but the ones that were there up until 66 or 67 had to get there on their own. I mean, they wouldn't. The AP did not assign a woman to their Saigon Bureau until 1972. Hmm. They assigned uh, Edie Letterer, who who went on then to become a very well-known worth correspondent. The AP had sent one other woman before that, and she is mentioned, again, in Follies, she's mentioned not even as a fictional character. I mean, there's a an exchange between my two fictional characters about this woman from the AP that came over a, a year before, which would have been 1967, and burned Westmoreland by reporting that while some battle was going on, he was in his whites playing tennis at the <laughs> at the Saigon Tennis Club. So that woman was Kelly Tunney, and and she was there and assigned, but she went over to do women's stuff, to do mm-hmm. featurey kind of stuff. So, in point of fact, the first woman they assigned, the AP finally assigned, was 1972. And there was, as I understand it, a bit of a fight over that, you know, people that were totally resistant to the idea. How challenging was it for a woman reporter to be on the ground in Vietnam? Well... There were several things that were a challenge. Number one was the male reporters weren't delighted to have them around or weren't used to it, kind of, you know, kind of didn't know how to behave. I guess it's almost like when female sports reporters would first start to go into the locker rooms. You You had your heroine show up in Vietnam in a dress and sexy transparent heels. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You know, maybe that was, I'm not sure any, any, any of the few that went over there and paid their own way did that. I, that was just for dramatic effect mm-hmm. for the male reporters to notice her and who in the world is this and yeah. and to also show that she didn't know what she was doing that first day, but she learned. I think the first women that showed up were maybe in 66. Strangely, the network sent a couple of women maybe in 67, but otherwise, the the women that were there, and there certainly were a few of them, there were some really famous ones. There was a woman named Kathy Leroy who was a photographer, a French French woman, who even was captured. But her, she was only for a day. Kate Webb was captured and held for so long, but this was in Cambodia several years later. Kate Webb was missing for so long, uh, held by the North Vietnamese, that the New York Times ran her obit. Hmm. So it was Kate Webb and Kathleen Leroy that I got, you know, that I read and got information from about what Angela's capture, Angela was captured by the Viet Cong. So every bit of it, every bit of it. I, you know, I read books by reporters, by army nurses, to get the feel of what each one of their lives and experiences was like. Angela's mom was not supportive of her being a journalist. Was your mom supportive of you yeah. being a journalist? Yeah. Yeah. No, I that Angela's mom Angela's mom was 
kind of put in there to try to give the sort of fictional thread the idea of of a woman that was very successful, her mother was. In fact, I had to do a lot of research to find out, to find a a medical school that would took, take Angela's mother. She was a surgeon, which was totally... So so that was the sort of fictional theme that Angela's mother wanted her to be a surgeon and thought journalism was totally disrespectful business to be, disreputable business to be in. So... So that that was the one of the fictional threads that I finally developed to to try to give a reason for why Angela was trying to prove herself, mm-hmm. um, and the mother was the mother was uh, was a convenient, and especially making the mother a surgeon. My mother was a <laughs> Your mother time. flew open cockpit planes. <laughs> yeah. She was a barnstorming pilot. Yes, yes. Well, I don't know if she was exactly a barnstorming pilot, but she was hanging out with all those barnstormers and and uh she always said that the reason that she uh, she didn't want to be a stunt pilot pilot and didn't want to do all those crazy things was because she said every time she flew upside down, she was scared the pillow behind her was going to fall out and she'd fall out of the airplane because she was so tiny. I mean, she weighed, I think she weighed 98 pounds when she delivered me. Hmm. So she was so tiny. And in those old planes, the, the cockpit is just an open hole. And, uh, so anyway, she always said she didn't have the guts to well, she didn't even say she didn't have the guts. She just said she was always afraid when she flew upside down she was going to s- slip out. The pillow would slip out yeah. and there she'd go. So, she wasn't exactly a barnstormer, but she was hanging out with 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 all those guys and and had some wild stories to tell and uh I've now written a book that kind of is based to some extent on um the stories I've heard from her and and a lot of research. Another you know. book that's yeah. coming out. Yeah. What's the title? Uh, Jenny Flynn. Okay. We'll have to look uh, out the for old, that one. The old planes were called a uh, Jenny. Mm-hmm. My, my mother learned to fly in an, in an open cockpit uh, plane that was used as a trainer during World War One, And uh, those planes are all called Jenny's. And and my favorite aunt was named Flynn. So there you go. So I named uh, I named the book Jenny Flynn. What's the significance of the title of this book, The Five O'clock Follies? Oh, the Follies. Um, the press. There was a press briefing given by the government at five o'clock every day in Saigon at the old Rex Hotel, and. The reporters just called it the Follies, the Five O'Clock Follies, because they didn't trust or believe the information that they were getting there. I mean, the 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 guy, the PIO, the press information officer, would stand up on the stage and use a pointer and say, you know, there were this many kills and there was this and there was that. And the reporters would go to these briefings and just sort of look at each other and say, look, you know, shrug, because that's not what they were seeing when they went out to a battle site or to a battle zone. So 
this is one of the themes of the book. The thing that was that differentiated the reporters were the ones that were constantly going out and coming back with stories of what they were seeing in the field as opposed to what the government, the information the government was handing out at the Follies. What would you say surprised you most in doing all of this research about the press in Vietnam? What surprised me most about the press? Well, I think that the thing that surprised me most that was sort of in the beginning was that you can just go. You could, in fact, I have Angela do this. She goes, she goes up to to the eight, fourth floor of the old AP in Rockefeller Center and gets a press a letter for a press credential. They they gave them a camera and a and a couple of rolls of film, and anybody could do it. I mean, basically anybody could do that. And when I first found that out, and you know, I think who I, f- let's see, Nora Ephraim, in in some some essay or something I found of hers, I was already doing the Vietnam, you know, sort of interested in Vietnam, I found this essay, and I'm like, anybody, anybody, anybody? The book is The Five O'Clock Follies, What's a Woman Doing Here Anyway? Fiesa Tui, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. It's been really fun. (laughs) Theasa Tui is a veteran journalist and the author of Five O'Clock Follies, What's a Woman Doing Here Anyway? It's out now from Calliope Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.